Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody, on a cool, cloudy May afternoon um, in San Francisco on May 6, 2022. Uh, as many of you can imagine, our regular viewers, I get a lot of books sent to me, some accidentally, some speculatively, some that I've actually asked for. And one book that came a couple of weeks ago particularly intrigued me. The cover was um, of Edouard Vuillard's um, Art Dealers, and the author is a man called Charles Delheim, who is my guest today. The book is called Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern. I was slightly, I have to admit, taken aback by the subtitle. I thought, is this man accusing the Jews of making the art world modern? Is he suggesting that Jews have shaped the modernity of art? Of course, that's a, a trope from many anti-Semites, particularly European ones in the 20th century. Of course, it isn't. It's a book very much, um, I don't know if it's eulogizing or celebrating uh, Jewish involvement in modern art, but I'm curious to kick off. Um, Charles is joining us from Provincetown um, on the other side of the United States. Charles, that subtitle, should I have been a little taken aback? Was there a polemical element there? Were you making fun perhaps or even polemicizing anti-Semitism? Well, I don't think there was a polemical element. What I meant by the title was that in the late 19th and early 20th century, a group of Jewish outsiders um, against all odds um, came to play a pivotal role in transforming the art world on two fronts. First, um, they helped engineer the transfer of old master paintings from European aristocratic collections to American capitalist collections and then on to private and public museums. And the other front was as the champions of successive schools of modernism. And as you point out, Andrew, the second part of this, Jews and modernism has a long and dangerous history. Uh, the idea that Jews equals modernism uh, was a staple of Nazi propaganda. Uh, psychoanalysis and relativity theory were um, excoriated as Jewish sciences, and modern art was seen as entartete um, Kunst, as a degenerate art. Um, that's not at all my point. Uh, what the Nazis was, were do, was doing was something very different from what I'm doing. I'm trying to tell a story and to do so uh, with sympathy, but without overlooking um, the flaws of the main characters. You note the decline of the traditional aristocracy and the way in which the Jews or some Jewish entrepreneurs, aren't, uh, artists, middlemen, uh, increasingly played a more important role. But of course, there were also Jewish critics of um, economic modernity, economic capitalism. One, and, and many of those were, of course, Jewish, uh, one that 
comes to mind in particular is Walter Benjamin. What do you think the Marxist take, the, the cultural Marxist take on, on, your, uh, on, your, on your argument is about a certain group of outsiders appropriating tradition to profit from modernity? Well, my guess is that the Marxist take would be um, about what sociologists call en bourgeoisement, the process of um, uh, individuals or collectivities um, joining the upper ranks of the middle classes, and that this would be seen as a byproduct of uh, the ascent of industrial capitalism and the role of Jewish entrepreneurs. You know, Marx and Engels famously wrote that the role of the bourgeoisie historically was to destroy the last vestiges of feudalism. And to an extent, that actually applies to the story that I tell in the book. Um, the Jews um, who I write about, whether they're um, dealers, collectors, critics, or artists, or people who are not beneficiaries of the old cultural order. Uh, for the most part, though not entirely, they operate outside of the magic circle of the academies of fine art and the salon. Uh, these were people um, who were not part of this existing structure, and they therefore had less invested in its perpetuation, and in many cases, a certain interest in its destruction. When you talk about the old aristocracy selling off their art and, right. and their houses, it, it, it reminds me that perhaps in a sense, art was like land. Um, it didn't have value in the pre-modern world. And suddenly, groups of people, for one reason or other, understood its value and began to buy it up. Is there a, an equivalence between land, property, and art? Well, there's an equivalence in two ways. Land brought prestige. Art brought prestige. Um, traditionally, art was the province of princes, nobles, um, churchmen, um, and these are people who also were great landowners. But there's um, also a major difference, is that the alienation of land was a much more complicated process. When um, English aristocrats, whether it was the Marbos or the Spencers, um, needed to raise funds to pay death duties, um, to pay income tax, to make up for their falling agricultural income, um, they did a number of things. Um, they might sell off a townhouse. Um, in extreme cases, they would sell off a country house. But generally, it was a lot easier and more palatable to sell off goods that were more mobile, whether this was livestock um, or, in a very different way, um, painting, sculptures, which had been in their family for generations, um, either paintings that had been brought back by their 18th century ancestors from their so-called grand tours of Italy, or pictures that had been commissioned by, um, by these aristocratic families from the likes of uh, Reynolds or Gainsborough. 
Um, if you sold off land, you'd have to worry about who your neighbors were going to be. And there are some very unpleasant things that show up in um, aristocratic diaries about the fear of having an American or a Jew or even worse, an American Jew be your neighbor. Um, it was easier to sell off pictures. Um, they also sold off books. And this becomes a, uh, an urgent requirement as the economic climate changes. And, and of course, Charles, what they sold off, which was perhaps most valuable, were titles. Um, and, uh, or at least the state sold off titles. And often it wasn't just Jews, but there were Jews buying the titles as well. Sure. There's a lot. I mean, look, there are a lot of people buying titles who want to be a fun or a, um, a tzu. Uh, Joachim von Ribbentrop, uh, who's the um, one of the villains of my book later on, uh, was a notable collector of modern art. Um, he was the German ambassador to Britain, and then he became the foreign um, secretary uh, it, once the the war starts. Um, he buys his title. He buys it with his wife's money. But What's more usual than than um, selling titles, because if you sell a title, your family doesn't have it anymore, was to um, pick your marriage partners carefully. And it's one of the reasons why there were young American heiresses um, or Jewish heiresses who became extremely um, valuable in strict monetary terms. They brought liquid capital to a marriage, and in return, their family um, had a derived a certain kind of prestige that otherwise would have been denied them. Charles, in this new class of Jewish art dealers, and not as I, I think we have to be a little careful here. Not all art dealers were Jewish, of course, but your book stresses that some were, many of the most influential were, and some of the, the most successful. Um, they they traded in both classic Renaissance art and, of course, modern art. Was there any degree of ambivalence about profiting from? the art of the Renaissance or of the Middle Ages, art which very often was rooted in various kinds of anti-Semitism, visual or ideological of some sort or other? I, I think there is ambivalence, and but it's not ambivalence about selling the art. It's probably the ambivalence about buying the art in the first place or seeing the art. You know, Jews were traditionally the people of the book, uh, focused on literary images rather than uh, visual images. And part of Jewish um, assimilation um, or occult and acculturation was an encounter with the aesthetic traditions of the West. And as you know, um, a great many of the old master paintings were history paintings suffused with Christian imagery, stories from um, the Gospels. And this was in some ways dangerous stuff for Jews uh, because they were these were images that were associated with um, their historic oppressors. And that's over and above the you know the complicated but compelling story of um, attitudes to visual arts from the second commandment onwards. We had um, and I'm sure you're familiar with her work, Charles, um, 
Dara Horn on the show quite recently. She's written a book, very controversial book, People Love Dead Jews, which suggests that we focus too much, we being modern writers, journalists, um, commentators, we, we focus too much on particularly the the victims of the Holocaust who were relatively integrated. We forget about the majority of Jews, dead Jews in, 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 in the Second World War in the Holocaust, who who weren't like Anne Frank uh, or many of the art dealers that you write about and the artists you write about in the book. To what extent were many of the people that you write about trying to forget their Jewishness and perhaps even using art in itself as a way of forgetting it, of integration? Because after all, the, the core of your story is in Middle Europe, in, in Vienna, in Germany, uh, where the Jews were relatively integrated and relatively successful and wealthy. Um, was there a degree in which art was a passport, a ticket out of the shtetl? Well, I don't know if it was a ticket out of the shtetl, because if you were in the shtetl, um, there was no way to get that ticket, because you really weren't seeing much art. You were not exposed to visual images. Uh, one of the characters I talk about is Bernard Berenson, who becomes one of the great connoisseurs of the 20th century. He's born in a shtetl in, um, uh, in Russia, near and had he stayed there, the chance of him becoming an art critic or connoisseur was almost nil. Uh, this was very much part of his family's um, immigration to America, to Boston at age 10, um, his education at Harvard, and still more um, his um, immersion in European art. Uh, for Berenson, um, yes, there is a certain way in which seeing and believe it um, go together in which his uh, conversion to Episcopalianism and then his Episcopalian, um, his, his conversion to Catholicism uh, were part of, forget his origins. Uh, at the same time, though, um, Berenson was regarded and regarded himself as a Russian and a Jew. Uh, that's how he thought of himself. So, in fact, it's not really an either or. For most of the people that I'm writing about, it's not art or Judaism. Um, it's really about people who are trying to define a role in the larger world. That's what belonging's about. It's a search for affiliation, for connection, for some way of um, finding their feet in a new world in which Jews were not considered um, respectable not automatically, but this is not really an either or. Um, this is much more a question of, um, of how art could be integrated. You know, there's a great um, line and a couple of lines in Philip Roth's Operation Shylock. And he talks about Irving Berlin and he says, Irving Berlin um, turned Christmas into a holiday about snow and Easter into a holiday about hats, about fashion. So in effect, what he was doing was not assimilating. It's more a question of de-Christianizing um, the most sacred Christian religious holidays and in so doing, opening them up to Jews and to other outsiders. 
Charles, is there an irony at the heart of this notion of belonging to this new world of art that the art itself was all edge? It was a rebellion against tradition and perhaps even modernity. It challenged all aesthetic forms, whether it was, I don't know, uh, uh, Klimt or Picasso or, or Modigliani. Some, some right. of those artists were even Jews. So belonging for this new world of Jewish aesthetes and uh, art dealers was, in a sense, not belonging. Is that fair? Um. Well, it's a question of belonging where, belonging to what, uh, belonging with whom. Belonging uh, on the edge, belonging well, looking in rather than being inside. Well, you're right, um, but here's what I would say. The avant-garde was, among other things, a social community. And it's a social community in which aesthetic commitments mattered more than ethnic origins or religious practices. And one of the attractions the avant-garde had for Jews was that they could meet non-Jews on a more or less equal footing. Um, modern art was new. It was rapidly expanding. Uh, there was a proliferation of new styles. Uh, there was an attempt to subvert traditional forms of representation. And Jews, um, certain Jews at least, wanted to belong to this avant-garde because in a way it had the um, advantage for them that it didn't mean that they were simply assimilating into Christian society whole hog or rejecting it. It's mapping out new territory and the kind of economic and cultural activities in which Jews tended to flourish in in modern times um, all fit a basic kind of pattern, rapidly expanding, room for growth, professional hierarchies have not yet gelled, barriers to entry are low. And they, the Jews who become champions of modern art, whether it's the Rosenbergs, Bernheims, Kassiras, Alfred Fleshtime, um, and so forth, were people who had a social stake in this new group of avant-garde artists, critics, um, collectors, and their champions. So they are belonging on the edge, and there is discomfort in that. And there is, as you suggested earlier, Andrew, there's danger in it. Um, this well, that's is... what makes it exciting, and it makes it still relevant today. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it. I mean, the the fragmentary view of, say, the Cubists, for example, that could have been a commentary on the fragmentation of the Jewish world, which many of the, the figures in your book were living through and orchestrating one way or the other. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of putting it. I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, Avant-garde uh, artists and Jewish entrepreneurs, just to confine ourselves to a moment to the, the art dealers and collectors, had a kind of elective affinity. Um, they were on the margins of the bourgeoisie, but they didn't reject its glittering prizes. Um, they wanted the prizes. Manet wanted um, all of the prizes of the Academy and the Salon. He simply wasn't willing to paint the way they wanted him to paint, um, violating perspective, 
changing subjects, fulfilling what his friend uh, Charles Baudelaire called the, um, the heroism of modern life by depicting railway stations, um, objects that were from modernity. And this runs through um, a lot of Impressionist art and post-Impressionist art. And the, there is a kind of parallel in the dissolving forms of cubism with the dissolving social bonds of certain Jews who are departing from orthodoxy. But the thing about departing from orthodoxy, you may depart from, Ju from Judaism in its most traditional forms, um, but it doesn't mean that people don't think of you as a Jew that you don't think of yourself as a Jew. You know, part of the problem is we live in a world in which identity looms so large, but it's also uh, reduced to one thing. And most of us aren't one thing, we're many things. And that's certainly true of the dealers, the critics and the collectors that I write about. And that's what makes them interesting, that they are mediating between two worlds. They have one foot in each world but it's an uneasy kind of stance to take because do you belong in either? And um, are you accepted in either? And what does going in one direction versus another actually mean? Is this the first chapter or one of the early chapters in the, the history of Jewish, perhaps, and I, I use this word very carefully, domination of the culture businesses, because mm -hmm. a similar thing happened in Hollywood, even sure. in the music business. I did a show uh, last month uh, on Leonard Cohen's tour of Israel in the, uh, in the Yom Kippur War, and I was reminded that Dylan and Simon and uh, Leonard Cohen are all part of a similar tradition. Of course, the music business, the, the Hollywood, and even the internet business, there is, and, and one has to be very, very careful here, but there is a, a good number of Jews who have been very successful in these industries. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I, I'd be careful about the word domination. One of the well, your, your subtitle suggests domination, doesn't it? How Jews made the art world modern? Um, no, well... I mean, it, you know, I, I can't say what it suggests to you, Andrew. I can certainly see why you're saying that. The thing about domination um, is that it feeds into all of these tropes about international Jewish conspiracies. The fact is, you know, the people I'm writing about are as likely to um, vie against each other as to cooperate with each other. And Jews do play a, an outsized role in making the art world modern, but they're not the only ones. Modernism is not Jewish in the sense that um, it has anything to do with religion, uh, specifically Judaism, um, or that there was something inherently Jewish about that. And some modernists weren't too keen on the Jews either, T.S. Eliot and so oh, on. Oh, yeah. That's you're absolutely right, Eliot. Um, in in the essays on tradition and the individual talent, or notes on Christian societies, he sees Jews as the other that they can never belong. 
And that is one strain in modernism. You see it in Eliot, you see it in Yeats. Pound, and, Pound was yeah. even more explicitly. Yeah, but, but, but on the other hand, you don't see it in Joyce or in many others and in Proust. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the, the, the sort of, not, not Joyce, but the Irish, of course, and, and Joyce's whole career and all his achievements were very much sort of bound up in him being an outsider and the Irish being outsiders. Were there other outsiders in Europe, the Irish, the Greeks, for example, who played a, 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 a similarly, and I'm careful with my words here, pronounced role in the art world? Or was it just the Jews? I think, I think it depends on where you look. Um, I mean, if you look at the, the participation of Irish writers in the literary world, whether it's theater, fiction, or poetry in the early 20th century, um, it's immense. And I think that one of the things that the Jews and the Irish had in common was a so certain social circumstances, which for very different reasons made them relative outsiders who couldn't count on being socially accepted or respectable, the people who don't fit. And that creative tension was the source of some of the great um, works of modern art. Of course, the other thing that can happen about the so-called marginalized groups is, tragically, they stay on the margins. They can't get out. Um, I think that if you're looking at the role of Jews in these cultural businesses, sure, you're right. If you look at uh, musical empresarios, theatrical empresarios, publishing, um, art, and so forth, um, Jews do play an outsized role. But I think the reason for this is that unlike other middlemen who were of Christian origin, for Jews, these um, cultural spheres provided emblems of national citizenship, proof of cosmopolitan standing. And I think that's one of the things that sets them apart from some oh, of yeah, the other. It occurs to me, that, again, yeah. I'm speaking out loud here, Charles, it's a very interesting subject. Um, obviously, the pre-Second pre World War, there was a huge debate within the European Jewish community about Israel, Zionism versus socialism. Within the community that you write about, was there more of a, a propensity towards, shall we say, socialism over Zionism? Given, and, and the reason I asked that was, of course, Zionism was rooted in the land, and it, it in an odd way, makes the Jews normal, gives them soil. And perhaps one of the reasons why they were so comfortable in the world you write about is that they didn't have soil. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting way of putting it, Andrew. I mean, Zionism or socialism. Well, you know, if you look at the you know uh, the turn of the twentieth century, and say you look at Vienna, um, the the liberals come to power in Vienna in the eighteen sixties. Um, but by the mid-1890s, they are assaulted by these mass demagogue, demagogic parties, which are anti-Semitic, anti-capitalist, anti-rationalist, anti-liberal. And if you look at, say, Otto Schnitzler's novel, 
which is usually translated as the road to freedom or the road into the open, you see young people who are taking different paths out of what Hochmannsthal um, called a collapsing world. There's Zionism, there's socialism, and there's also aestheticism, a kind of you know religion of art in big quotes in which art is um, not simply a reflection of existing social values, but it becomes the um, crucible of social values. Uh, in terms of the people that I write about, there were certainly um, those who were um, socialist, you know, Daniel Henri Kahnweiler, um, this great German Jewish emigre from the Rhineland, um, who ends up with his family's help setting up his shop in Paris in 1907 and soon becomes the dealer for Picasso and the Cubists. He's a pacifist. He's a socialist. When the guns of August go off, uh, Conweiler thinks the war is crazy, and he was right. But he also found himself in an immensely difficult position. He didn't want to fight for France. He didn't want to fight against Germany. And very reluctantly, he goes to Switzerland and um, spends the war there, reading idealist philosophy, um, writing the first his first um, treatise about Cubism. And there's something to do with that, with the little group that Tom Stoppard brings together um, in travesties with um, Joyce and Zara and Lenin. Um, not that these are people who actually know each other, but Conweiler is in something of the same um, uh, situation. So Conweiler is a socialist in terms of his pol politics. He was also a hard-headed capitalist. And, you know, Picasso once said, what would have become of us if Conweiler hadn't had a business sense? So again, there, you know, there's not an either or an or. If you look at most Jews in Western Europe, um, they tended to be on the liberal side of things, the um, passionate defenders of the Third Republic. And yes, sure, some went further. But the thing that's interesting about um, the history of Jews in Europe is how diverse the different responses were. Um, there are um, people who went in all different directions. There were some who were hell-bent on um, embracing every aristocratic tradition um, in practicing you know, radical assimilation and simply abandoning Judaism. Uh, and there were others um, whose social position was a lot more ambiguous. And, um, you know, the first great essay written about this was written by Thorsten Wemblin in 1919 on the intellectual preeminence of Jews in modern Europe. And he wrote about science and scholarship. And Veblen, you know, a Wisconsin-born son of Norwegian immigrants, uh, the sociological scourge of the leisure class and of conspicuous consumption, identified with Jews. And what he argued was that uh, Jews um, who made their mark in science and scholarship 
did so because they had broken away with orthodoxy, but they were unable to actually um, integrate into the larger society, what Ibsen called the compact majority. So you get back to this creative tension. And without the creative tension, I think there would have been um, no cultural productivity um, to speak of, either in terms of people who were creating uh, works of art or literature, philosophy, social thought, um, science, or the people who are their champions. The book is Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern. Of course, this story ends in catastrophe. Um, we did a show uh, a couple of weeks ago about Nazi billionaires um, uh, with uh, with a, a Dutch uh, uh, a Dutch uh, journalist David De Jong. Some of the art that uh, was stolen by the Nazis, much of it was um, was was um, profited from by the Nazis. We still um, many of you will have seen the the movie Monuments Men about the the stealing of art. But I think one of the things that your book does very well, Charles, is remind us of the the personal catastrophe of what happened to this community. The inside jacket of your book is of a man I'd never heard of, Alfred Fleischheim, a very distinguished art dealer. And I thought, you know, on Wikipedia, he died on the streets of Paris. Uh, uh, he died in London on the streets, totally impoverished, having lost his fortune. This story ends not altogether catastrophically, but pretty catastrophically, doesn't it, Charles? Well, it always depends on where you end the story, Andrew. In look, I think there's no doubt that the shadow of the the Shoah, the Holocaust, has had an enormous role in Jewish self consciousness and in how um, Jewish history is regarded. But the major reason I wrote this book was to turn the story on its head. Um, and yes, there is a betrayal. Um, there is this catastrophe. Um, who betrays the, who, Charles? Um, well, the Jews are betrayed by um, anti-Semites and by Nazis. Uh, they had this one-sided love affair uh, with the uh, culture um, that ends up excluding them. Um, there's a catastrophe in the sense that there's this massive dispossession of Jewish assets, whether it's um, art collections, sacred books, um, precious manuscripts, musical um, instruments, which are all really, to me, um, emblems of belonging and sources of meaning. And there are some stories that end tragically in this book, but there are also the people who survive, uh, the people who um, try to recover their art collections and to recover their lives. But I think the most important thing about this is it's not just the restitution of stolen property, uh, which is you know crucial, um, moral, it's the correct thing to do, um, in almost all cases, but it's the, the restitution of the lives and works of the people that I write about, of their hopes, their aspirations, their struggles, of a group of men and women who were both self-taught in the arts and self-made. 
And that's what makes the story interesting. Um, is the story over? Well, you know, there was this dramatic resurgence of interest in um, the restitution of Nazi stolen art, which began in the late 1990s, more than five decades after the war. And contrary to what we would have um, guessed, and contrary to what I would have guessed, um, 20 years after this intense scrutiny began, um, new cases, new controversies still um, come to the fore. So it's not a story without end. But the story is not, um, you know, the, the story's end is not in sight yet. But I think the thing that I want to leave readers with is an understanding of the ways in which um, individual men and women from diverse backgrounds, uh, mostly very humble, came to play such a critical role in the transformation and in the opening of um, modern culture, both in Europe and in the United States. So yes, there is a tragedy here. There is a catastrophe, but there's also this drive to belong and drive to succeed. And the, um, the great achievements of many of the people that I write about, whether it's a commercial achievement um, or it's an aesthetic or critical one. Well, you've left us with this book, Charles. Congratulations. A wonderful achievement, beautifully written, magnificent work of art in itself. A fabulous book. Interesting title as well. Um, and of course, we are, we're left with the memories and we're left with the art. Fortunately, much of the art has been retrieved and now is in museums so we can all see it. What else, Charles, should we be reading these days? What else are you reading? You're probably looking at a lot of art too, but... What, what, what should we be reading or looking at in early May 2022? Well, I'll tell you what I've um, been enjoying in the last couple of months, um, Andrew, our, um, Joshua Cohn's novel on the Netanyahu's. Um, oh, I've heard about that one, yeah. It's, is it yeah. Supposed, to be, supposed to be really funny, yeah? It's really funny unless you're a Netanyahu. Um, if you're a <laughs> Netanyahu or, or a supporter of Netanyahu, um, it is not. It is not at all funny, um, but it's very cleverly done, and there are um, some really interesting issues. And for something very different, I've read um, Imogen um, Crimp's novel, uh, A Very Nice Girl, which is set in almost in contemporary London, um, and which I think is done with great skill and panache. Um, at the moment, I'm reading. Um, this Will Not Pass um, by Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns of the New York Times, uh, mm. which is about Trump, Biden, and uh, the backstory of January 6th and much else. Um, but I've also been reading older books. Um, I recently reread Richard Ellman's great biography of James Joyce. So I've been thinking a lot about the Irish and the Jews, Andrew. Yeah, and we haven't even talked about the African-Americans, the, the third stall in that relationship. Um, uh, Charles, final question. Um, who rules the world in May 2022? And don't say the Jews. Um, it's not the Jews. I think Jews are um, in a vulnerable spot, as they always are in um, economically and politically charged times. Um, who runs the world really depends on where you look. 
but I think that too much of the world is run by people who are indifferent to or hostile to reasons, science, um, evidence, imagination, and empathy. And, you know, we're at a moment in which we're not just dealing with a pendulum going back and forth, we're dealing with a, a pendulum going so violently to the right, and in some cases to the left, that we run the risk of the clock breaking to all of our detriment.